Hi, everybody. I'm Josh Constein, your host of Press Club, where the big names in tech talk about the big ideas. And one of the biggest companies in the world of blockchain, NFTs, and Web3 is Alchemy, the infrastructure startup that is effectively the AWS of blockchain. And they quietly have begun to power almost all of the major players in the Web3 space. They're powering OpenSea, Axie Infinity, Dapper Labs, as well as projects by Adobe and others. And today we're here with their incredible founders, Joe Lau and Nikhil Viswanathan, to talk about how they got here, their rise, the rise of Alchemy, the fall of their previous startup, what it's like building such a big company so fast, and how you retain a fun company culture that makes people excited to come to work every day. Plus, why some of the Web3 naysayers aren't quite right. So super excited to have you guys here, as well as Angelina, one of their earliest employees. Thank you guys for joining us here today. So Nikhil, maybe you could just jump in. How did this all happen? Like, how did you and Joe get started on this? And maybe you could tell us about the, the rise and fall of Down to Lunch, your social app that came before this, because most people don't go from building a super popular teen college social app to building a hardcore engineering infrastructure company. So how did this happen? Why don't we start with a little bit of our backgrounds, because I think we have maybe a little bit of non-traditional backgrounds. Joe, do you want to start? Absolutely. For me, actually, for both of us who grew up in small towns, I grew up in a small town in Washington called Vancouver. Everyone thinks it's Vancouver, BC, but there's a second uh, Vancouver, actually, that's in Washington. So I grew up there, you know, always wanted to build things for people. Uh, like a lot of us listening, you know, want to build things that people use and enjoy every day. When I got to college, I was doing mechanical engineering, but realized really quickly that the way to build things for a lot of people is to actually build software because you can instantly put it on the internet and billions of people have access to it. And that's just something that we've never been able to do before. So there's never been a better time than now to be a builder because of what software lets you do. So I studied computer science at Stanford, did my undergrad and master's there, came out, worked at a small company at the time called Pinterest for about a year. And then uh, Nikhil and I were friends from school, actually. So we had taken a couple of courses together, had a blast, reconnected, and just got really excited about the sorts of things we could build to bring people closer and, uh, and started a company there, which uh, Nikhil can talk about. It's funny, I had a similar story to Joe. I grew up in this like super small town that no one has ever heard of called Lubbock, Texas. Funny story, Joe's dad actually lived in Lubbock, Texas, and uh, Joe was almost born there, but he grew up in, in Vancouver, Washington, and then came to Stanford, did a bunch of computer science, artificial intelligence, machine learning, had like the time of my life there. I think one of the things that was really interesting and kind of formative to me during the, the early days was I had grown up really loving software and the internet and technology. And, you know, most kids wanted to be a firefighter or astronaut. I guess now it's like a TikTok or a YouTuber. But I said, I want to build software for everyone in the world. It was just like very like atypical nerdy thing to say. But I think coming to Stanford, because when I, when I was a kid in Texas, there were all of these incredible companies you saw on the internet, like Facebook and, and Google and, and Microsoft, but they were just like companies. And it wasn't even a real thing growing up in you know kid in town. There's no building over four stories tall, right? But coming and during my, during my college, started a couple of companies, but I really randomly, like never thought I'd ever do it, ended up doing uh, my internships, doing product management at Facebook, Google, Microsoft. And the cool thing was there was... Bill Gates had just left and then somehow I ended up hanging out with Steve Ballmer, who's the CEO at the time of Microsoft, and got him to come to Stanford to come speak. And then Google had meetings with Larry and I'd hang out with Sergey randomly at events. And at Facebook, there's one desk next to Mark and it happened to be my desk, right? So I got to hang out with them all summer. And it wasn't this, I'm not trying to like impress anyone here, but impress upon you. I got to see all these people firsthand. And one of the coolest things was that 
I just realized, you know, they're super driven, super smart, super motivated, but they're just normal people. And it kind of gave me the belief that, hey, if they can do it, like, you know, we can do it too, right? So around then, uh, you know, we, both Joe and I stayed for a master's. I was a year older than him. Uh, we actually met because we were teaching assistants for the database class at Stanford. This is one of those Steve Jobs connecting the dots in retrospect moment that you don't know ahead of time. But we met, we were teaching the databases class, which is kind of like the precursor to blockchain. So as a Stanford computer science teaching assistant, you're paid way too much to just grade people's assignments, teach sections, teach some lectures. And it's like super fun. If you like teaching, it's like one of the best jobs you can have. And normally that class has like 100 students. It's like really easy to TA for. and It's a lot of fun. That quarter they said, hey, let's try this thing called online learning. And basically what that what happened was 100,000 students signed up. They opened it up to anybody around the world. And it was literally the most insane quarter to TA4. Joe and I were up all night, like the night before the exam, we had 100,000 students. We had to generate certificates of completion. So I remember writing like code to generate automated generate PDFs for all the 100,000 students in the class. But the cool part was right after that, that spun out and became Coursera, which is this, for those of you who may not heard, is this free education platform online. And it ended up IPOing this year. So mine and Joe's first experience working together was actually thrown into trial by fire for startup life. And then really quickly, um, maybe Joe can tell a little bit of the down to lunch story. But basically, I think the way that Joe and I look at life is like, you can kind of think of it as you only have one shot at life, right? Religion, reincarnation aside, it's like, how do you really have a massive impact? And why not try to hit a home run if you only have one chance of life? And the way that we measure that is on these two axes, your x-axis and your y-axis, right? And your x-axis is how many people's lives you touch. And your y-axis is how deeply do you improve their life every day. So number of people times depth of impact. And the area under that curve is your impact on the world, right? And when you think about the x-axis of how do you reach scale and how do you actually impact life for billions of people around the world? Never before in human history was this possible, right? You could, 20 years ago, what were the forces that shaped our world? Government, religion, countries. What is it today, right? It's You can take this magic metal box and press buttons on it and build something everyone on the planet benefits from, right? And now the forces that shape our world are Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Bitcoin, Ethereum, right? So that was what we really loved. That's what got, we got really excited about. And then the Y-axis was really interesting because Joe and I kind of went through a similar thing where we really missed our friends post-college and it just wasn't the same experience and we were kind of like bummed and sad and, you know, I broke up with a girlfriend and was trying to figure out what I want to do and all this kind of stuff. So basically we said, what if we could make it feel like you live with your friends in college, right? Because the number one thing that determines your life on a daily basis is the people you're around. It is crazy that like we've spend our entire adulthood kind of just erecting these walls in between us that just divide us from the people we actually care about. And I feel like that's why so many people look back at college so fondly is it's really just the, like the density of human beings near each other where like there are all those walls that make you feel like, oh, I don't know who to hang out with or I wouldn't want to go through the activation energy of actually spending time with people dissolve. And you instead you have so much more information shared and just culture sharing in those moments. And I love that that's what Dom to Lunch's mission kind of was. Yeah. And Josh, I know you spent a bunch of time creating apps in the same space. Signal, right? Yeah, exactly. I tried to build a whole app to do this and you guys just did it like a hundred times better. <laughs> it's funny because we said we can do this and we want to do this for every person on the planet, but it was way harder than we thought. Maybe Joe can jump in and tell some of the story, but we built like 10 products and like nothing worked for a long time. Yeah. I love to hear the story of like just persevering when things don't work. Cause I think that that's something that a lot of people, especially in web three, but around all entrepreneurship go through. Yeah, absolutely. I know we also have Angelina here, who was like one of the earliest, earliest people who joined Alchemy. Wanted to uh, let her introduce herself as well. 
Hi, everybody. I'm Angelina. So I joined Nikhil and Joe early on during Down to Lunch times. Uh, I went to school to Berkeley and just, you know, happened to see a post on their friend's Facebook page about they're building this app called Down to Lunch. And honestly, like I fell in love with the project. I was like, I need to be part of this. I emailed them and just everything started from there. Like even in between um, Down to Lunch and Alchemy, you know, we built so many different products and stuff. And so honestly, the journey has been so much fun. And yeah. So tell us about those early days of, of Down to Lunch, Joe, because I just feel like I remember visiting you guys and it was you guys in this like weird little warehouse apartment. And you told me you guys hadn't <laughs> left for like an entire week. And like VCs were just like coming by and basically just like trying to throw gifts and term sheets at you. And you guys just like weren't taking them, just trying to stay like concentrated on the product. But like I just hadn't seen anybody who like literally involved, like just took their entire life and poured it into their startup. Maybe that's not great for like work-life balance, but you guys seem to turn what work into life because you seem to have so much fun doing it. Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, for Nikhil and, and me and Angelina and really all the early team, you know, I think we really have this belief that to build something really great, you can't just do it like nine to five and you can't just do it for fun. Like you really have to like pour yourself into it and be really invested. So we really lived by that in the early days and still do. So exactly like you're saying, I, I remember you came over one time and we lived in a, a loft in SF, like small loft. That's where we worked. And we also lived there, Nikhil and I, and everyone would come in during the day and we'd work out of the living room. There were literally weeks where like Nikhil and I wouldn't leave the loft for a week at a time because we just ordered Chipotle, we'd eat Chipotle for lunch and dinner. We'd just be working there day and night. We'd go to sleep. We'd wake back up. We'd come back out to the living room. Angelina would have to watch us kind of like come out of their bedrooms half awake. But yeah, it was an absolute blast. And in terms of how we started, you know, at that time, we were laser focused on figuring out how to create the same kind of connection, the same kind of close connection that you had with your friends in college. And like you said, Josh, a lot of it was based around being in the same place and not having all these barriers, these activation energy to actually getting going. We actually built a lot of different things. And one kind of meta point you'll see with building things is, you know, like whether you look at Mark Zuckerberg or like whoever it is, they built a ton of stuff before they actually built what worked. Mark talks about how Facebook actually wasn't the thing that he thought would work. It's actually something else. This like peer-to-peer like file sharing thing. For us, we built probably eight or nine things before down the lunch, actually all focused around the same concept. But I think one thing that's really important in the early days is finding that product market fit. And until you find it, you have to keep exploring. And it's all about how fast you move, right? The big don't eat the small, the fast eat the slow in startup land. So it's all about how quickly you can iterate and continue to build. So for us, the origin of Down to Lunch was we were building these apps. And then every day, Nikhil and I would go to Safeway and we'd buy like the $6 combo box at the deli, which was not healthy at all. It was all kind of like brown colored and fried, but it was close and it was cheap. And so that was what we would buy. And then every so often, we'd run into friends, we'd run into these other guys we knew from school who were building this company called Heap Analytics, a fantastic company. And we'd be like, hey, we should get lunch sometime. They'd be like, yeah, sure, let's get lunch. And then things would get busy. We'd never actually do it. And one day, Nikhil and I were sitting around and we're like, hey, what if there's an easy way to just get lunch? So we're like, why don't we build an app for that? We'll just build it for fun. We we're building this other stuff at the time, but we're like, hey, why don't we just build an app? It'll be super simple. Just one button you hit when you're ready to get lunch. All your friends will get notified and whoever's ready to get lunch can come out and you can all meet up. So that was how it got started. Super, super simple. We didn't even ship it to the app store at first. We just shipped it on Apple's enterprise build, which is kind of like this private beta that doesn't show up on the app store. So you can- <laughs> You're not supposed to do that. I like got Facebook in so much trouble for doing that. Back in the <laughs> so- day, literally everyone did that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We were not the only ones. But again, you know, the fast eat the slow. And so it's all about how quickly you can iterate. Once you get to be a big company and you're making builds every couple of weeks, you're like you're not getting feedback for weeks and weeks at a time. It just changes the pace that you're able to move at. So we we shipped it out, um, got way bigger than honestly we ever would have thought. Nikhil, do you want to tell that story? 
it was crazy. So right before this, we had built, I don't know, like eight, nine different products and like nothing worked. We'd always like, all right, this one is going to be the one. There was one called Adventures. There was one called InSync. There was one called Tello. There was one, there was basically all these apps around share. It was all the same concept. Like how do you share stories? Like the personal moments, you know, the moment when you walk back into the hallway at like 5 a.m. in your dorm and you're drunk and you like have this really amazing conversation with one of your friends is like, how do you capture that? And we never thought it would be in person. We always thought it'd be like a digital sharing type thing. So like, basically we built this app and we're like, okay, literally no one is going to use it except our two friends, Ravi and Mateen and Jason. And basically they'll use it and we'll all hang out together. And the funny part is when we built the app, we actually put our phone number in. and Josh, you know the story, like we actually put our phone number in the app. This is so crazy. Like, I can't believe you guys actually did this. And I wish more founders did it, but maybe not the best for their mental health. <laughs> yeah, right. A lot of people copied it afterwards this was kind of a new paradigm. We did a couple things that a bunch of people copied, but so we literally thought it was only going to be our three friends who use the app. So we put our phone number in the app because we're like, we don't have time to build a help page and tutorial and all this stuff because we built it in like a couple hours, right? So what happened was when we were like, they can just text us with any questions. So we built the app and somehow the app goes viral. It was like this Facebook post we wrote that went super viral. And later on, basically this kid at the University of Georgia, this kid Akash and, and Rishi, Rishi Baga, who we're like good friends with now, they found the app and they were like, wow, like this is so cool. We want to hang out with our friends. So let's go tell everyone. So they went door to door and like told hundreds of people at the University of Georgia. So the app starts blowing up. Again, we're like super surprised. There are a lot of things we thought would work and did not work. We really didn't think that this one would be like massively viral. And, you know, we start getting text messages. First, we start getting a couple texts a day from random people. Then we start getting, you know, tens of texts and hundreds, thousands. It got to the point where I don't remember the exact number, but it's like there were days where we got like tens of thousands of text message. And it turns out we actually broke iMessage, not only our phone, we actually broke like the iMessage infrastructure. And like we had to email Tim Cook and we we're like, Tim, please you're our only hope we almost live next to each other and we've been at the app store for three days and no one can fix anything because after you get about fourteen thousand text messages your icon stops counting so it's like fourteen thousand something and your your text message icon stops changing and then after like we're guessing around fifty thousand you don't get calls anymore so we couldn't get calls for like six months so everyone else would sound like we're ringing it just didn't ring for us right <laughs> oh my god that, that seems pretty problematic for a founder to not be able to have phone calls yeah a lot of vcs were mad at, i found out were mad at us later on because they thought we were ignoring them but we're like, no, we just, we just didn't get your call, dude. But basically, long story short, one of the funny things was we have a lot of crazy stories at this time. I know a bunch of people are probably doing startups. So I'll try to share some actual helpful stuff instead of just like telling random stories. So Tim Cook's exec staff called a couple of days later. They're like, oh, Tim read your email. He wants to help you out. Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we talked to the iMessage team. We're like, come on, guys, we're engineers. We know that your infrastructure shouldn't break if somebody's getting 10, 20,000 text messages a day. They're like, well, it's like the most Apple response ever. They're like, well, you know, you're using the system in a way that it shouldn't be used and designed and all this stuff. I was like, look, man, come on. There's no way we get more text messages than Justin Bieber. And they're like, well, we're not supposed to say, but yeah. And they were like, wait, what number of user are we on iMessage? Like, I was like, are we top 10? They're like, well, we can't really say, but yeah. And they basically told us we're like the top 10 iMessage users in the world. So I don't think that's supposed to be a badge of honor, Nikhil. <laughs> it was crazy. And it's funny because this was actually a really cool thing that we did. And we always try to be really close to our users. And there were so, some days where we just spend 10 hours a day just texting back with like, whatever, random college students who texted us or high schoolers or whatever, right? And all, our entire product roadmap was driven by that. We never had to go figure out like what do people want they would just tell us right and it was super super cool and we're still you know we're still friends with a bunch of the people 
you know, one of the secrets for alchemy is like, we have a really close relationship with all of our customers and we've taken kind of like the same approach. And that's definitely been something that has allowed us to really, really understand what people want and build products that people want. I hope more founders put like direct contact information into their apps in the early days so they can get more of that direct feedback. I also heard something, you know, that uh, Superhuman does, which I love is they actually mark down, they tabulate what feature requests everybody who sends in support requests has. And then if they ever build that, they actually email that person specifically and like thank them and like tell them like, hey, that feature that you requested actually got built. And apparently that's like incredibly helpful that just makes, you know, drives crazy retention because people are like, oh my God, you actually listened to me, which I think is super cool. Actually, I think we do 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 it to a smaller extent. But one of my favorite stories is Joe and I wanted to go user test and it ended up being a college product. So we would actually like go to college campuses. Like we spent a week at the Cal Poly San Luis Obispo campus. And then the closest one we go to is Berkeley though, because Stanford is not like real life. The Stanford people aren't like normal people. So we wanted to have like a more accurate representation of- Go Bears. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And basically like, it's just such a cool experience because like we would go there and one of the things, maybe a couple tips for people who are doing user testing, never tell anybody you built the product because we tried that once and people are like, oh, what's this? It's like, oh, an app we built. And then no one will give you real feedback because they're like, oh, that's so cool. And like, oh, it's great. I love it. I love it. But they're actually never going to use it because they're just trying to be nice. So what we do is we tell people like, oh, we wouldn't lie. We're just like, oh yeah, you know, we're like working with this company. We don't give a shit. Like it's, you know, just, just give us feedback. We get paid hourly. And they would give us feedback and we would dress up like Berkeley students. We actually had a bunch of like Instagram posts. If you guys have seen my Instagram, it's like we dress up as Berkeley students and all my stare friends like, what the heck are you guys doing? <laughs> if you guys don't know, like those colleges kind of hate each other. It's like a friendly rivalry, but like dressing up in Berkeley clothes is like not rather frowned upon. It was definitely like 22 jumpsuit is exactly like that. And one quick funny thing was that we started getting recognized. I still remember we had done user testing with this one girl and she was like, oh, I should have known. And finally, at the end, she was like, do you go here and we're like oh like we graduated recently she was like oh you're from berkeley and we're like uh no from like another school and then she was like i should have known when you weren't on the like air bears wi-fi you're on the cal visitor wi-fi but the funny part was like the next weekend we were there again and she we're like eating sushi at the student union and she was like what are you guys doing here? So we actually ended up getting like recognized because we would go there so often. So that's the fun stuff, but that's definitely not what entrepreneurship is actually usually like. So maybe you could tell us about maybe the harder time when suddenly everything kind of fell apart. And, you know, we don't have to dig too deep into the kind of mysteries surrounding exactly why, but just would love to hear more about like how you guys felt and how you guys kept yourself going, working on products. And then also like when you knew to kind of cut the cord on that and try to build something new. Okay, so let me set the scene for you. So this is 2016. So Joe and I are like six years out of undergrad, four years out of grad school. Joe's uh, five and three, but we've made like no money. We're paying ourselves. We, I don't think we were paying salary at the time. I think we were working out of our office and we had this like work loft thing that uh, Josh had come by and you know, we're taking like no salary. Maybe it was 30K. One thing though, it always felt like fun. Like this whole journey through all the ups and downs and craziness, we'd always say like we would do it for free. We basically were, but it was it was always a ton of fun. But around this time, we're, you know, six years out of undergrad, four years out of grad school. We've built like a bunch of products. You know, the thing was like, we just drop out and start like a multi-billion dollar company like Facebook and like in six months. And like, clearly that hadn't happened. All our friends are getting married, buying houses, having stable jobs. Joe and I are like living basically in like effectively a glorified dorm room with like a couple more windows than a dorm room normally has. And finally, years later, you know, we built probably eight, nine products, 
finally we get something that hits. It's near the top of the app store. It's blowing up. It was so cool. And then one day we were having our happy hour and then we see somebody had tweeted out this, like there was like a fake app store review that said, Hey, I used down to lunch and my friend got kidnapped. And we're like, what? This is so crazy. Like, because at the time you couldn't even add friends on the app. So you literally couldn't contact anyone except the people who are all doing your phone books. So it was basically like virtually impossible. And we had seen Snapchat at the time and, you know, Snapchat had this whole sexting thing and it worked out well for them because it actually spurred more people to use the app. To be fair, I was in a house with the Snapchat founders. Sexting was definitely a purpose that Reggie Brown, one of the original Snapchat founders, built Snapchat for. Like they tried to say that that wasn't what it was for for a long time. That's what it was for, for the better or worse. <laughs> but yeah. Yep. So, so with this, it was like, and what we found is effectively what happened was like there was like this smear campaign that actually had happened to a bunch of other companies before. And it's like pretty easy to execute, actually. Uh, one of our competitors, we don't know who did it. There were a lot of people trying to compete with us at the time. Facebook was trying to compete. Google was trying to compete. I doubt it was either of those, but there were a bunch of other apps doing that same thing. And ours, it just worked. So then basically it was crazy. Within like 24 hours, everyone deleted the app. It was like, if you look at the graph, it's like hockey stick up. And then immediately one day it's like gone. And it was crazy. We're like, what do we do? Because you know, for months, people just like completely, everyone was like, oh, if you get, it just went, ultra viral that you get kidnapped. So anyway, long story short, and it was just so ridiculous because like you couldn't even talk to random people. You can only talk to people in your in your address book, in your, your phone contact. So anyway, like we wait we just waited for like three, four, five months and then finally it started picking up again and went to the top of the app store and hit number one. And it was it was just so crazy to see, you know, one day you open your iPhone and it's like the top app in the social. It's like you open your iPhone, it's literally number one down to lunch, number two, Facebook, three, WhatsApp, Messenger, Instagram, Snapchat. So it was wild. And then kind of like that whole thing happened again. So what we actually did, and people don't actually know this, is we actually launched the app in secret. We built version two and version three in secret, didn't tell anyone, actually registered under Angelina's name. Angelina Russell is like an app store <laughs> yeah. developer. Yeah. And we launched out a bunch of colleges and it actually went really well. But that was the part of the story that no one knows. But eventually that went well for a little while, but wasn't really sustaining and retaining users. So like, no, actually it was sustaining and retaining users. So we built version two and three of Down to Lunch. It was called Friend Spotter. It was like kind of location based and it was really cool. Like the retention curves were flattening out. It was actually really sticky and really, 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 really popular. So what happened was 2017 had happened and it was early when crypto was starting to take off. Ethereum was starting to take off. We had seen crypto for a really long time. There's these two guys, Michael and Yanni, who lived in our apartment downstairs. They're working on a this company called Wire. And, you know, we'd play beer pong together and they would always come be like, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. And we're like, yeah, totally. We totally believed in it. It was the future. But we were, Joe and I were so focused on the mission of bringing community to the world. But then 2017 happened. And so we had this really interesting time where crypto started taking off. We saw that when you think about the big shifts in technology, there's computer, internet, and Web3. We called it crypto then, then blockchain, now it's called Web3. But basically, each one of these gives a new fundamental building block. So the computer says is, hey, now machines can follow human instructions. And then internet comes along and says, okay, now machines can exchange information. Then Web3 comes along and says, okay, now machines can exchange value. And we saw this and we said, look, like, if you're in the right place at the right time, like this could be a really transformational shift. And you're, if you're at the right place at the right time, you can build a really foundational company. It's kind of what Apple and Microsoft had done for the computing industry. Google and Amazon had done for the internet. We said we could build something like that. But it was this really kind of quandary because we had dedicated our life to this. It was actually going really well. And spring had finished. So it was probably like April, May. And we were in summer. So the question was, do we continue our social product, which is going really well, actually. And again, people don't realize this. 
or do we try this crypto thing, right? And kind of what we decided, and I have to give all credit to Joe. Joe was the one who was like, hey, this could be a really big opportunity. I was a little more stuck on the social stuff. It was a team effort for sure. Team effort it was for sure, Joe. So kind of what we said is, let's try this crypto thing for three months during summer. Because during summer, we had nothing to do because it was like college app, right? So we were like, either we just do more marketing or we'll just relaunch it. And we said, if anything picks up, maybe we can explore that. Otherwise, we'll just come back and the app's doing pretty well and we'll roll it out for fall when we come back. When you did finally make that decision to say, like, it's time for down to lunch and friend spotter to, to you know, drift off into the sunset and join the Deadpool of so many other amazing social apps that have tried to rekindle acquaintanceship for us before like what did that feel like and how did you kind of come to that final decision or was there like a day where you're like it's dead it's okay we got something else i don't think we ever had that day because we just let it run for the next couple years and people were still using it and it was kind of this thing where we started and joe 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 can share the origin story of, of alchemy but like basically we we built this new software platform and before we even wrote a single line of code we sold like almost half a million dollars of software. And the crazy part was at this point, it's 2017, end of mid 2017. We're seven years out of grad, five years out of grad school. We have not made one penny. Like literally our companies as a total, every product we've built have made $0. And then suddenly we made half a million dollars and we're like, holy shit, this is insane. This crypto thing's the future. And it turns out we didn't have product market fit on that. So we had to pivot one more time. But Joe can maybe tell that story. And for the social apps, we just kind of let it ride. And we actually never shut them down until years later. And people were still using it for a long time. Okay, so I, I can't wait to get into the real story of Alchemy now. Uh, but thank you guys all for being here and listening to Press Club. Really thankful to have you part of the community where we bring the big names in tech together to talk about the big ideas. All right, so how did Alchemy finally get off the ground? Real quick, this is part of the story that like all this stuff is like, I don't think we've ever shared publicly. So just for you, Josh, first time anybody's hearing this. Yeah, Josh, you're a, you're a fantastic interviewer. Also, I'm super impressed how well Clubhouse does the microphone cancellation because we're like me and Nikhil literally right next to each other in this hotel room. But yeah, so Alchemy, how it happened. So basically, like Nikhil had started to say, like we'd always seen crypto, we'd always seen blockchain, and always had seen it as potentially like a new technology platform that we could build all sorts of applications on top of. So Nikhil and I were both engineers. We built things for years and years and years. Whenever new tools and new platforms come out that you can build new things on, we're like, oh, that's super cool. And we had these friends downstairs, Mike Dunworth and Yanni, who we knew about. So we jumped into the space. We're like, hey, if this is the next shift, the personal computer and then the internet and then blockchain, like now is the time to really be exploring the space and figuring out what we want to do. It's like in 95, if you're working on a physical bookstore, like now is the time to think about selling books on the internet, right? So we're like, hey, blockchain is super cool. Let's check it out. We started building our first product, which was more of an analytics platform for hedge funds and traders. This was the thing that Nikhil said we booked like a half a million dollars in revenue for. That was one sign to us that this market was really interesting. And for all the entrepreneurs and founders and startup people out there, you know, one thing that we've seen is like, and Mark Andreessen has a post about this, but often a strong market will pull the right product out of a team. So like whenever you feel that pull from a market, that's a sign to really listen and dig in deep and understand what's going on there. So for us, the first step we'd taken into blockchain with this analytics platform, we're like, hey, there's a lot of interest and there's a lot of demand for this. Let's look a little further. So we actually started building out this whole analytics suite and we powered a bunch of stuff for a bunch of different hedge funds. Hedge funds could basically use our tools to understand what exactly was going on on the blockchain, like who is moving money where, how to trade, how to make money, that sort of thing. But the really interesting thing and in how this leads to Alchemy was when we were building it, we realized it was super, super hard to build anything in blockchain. Nikhil and I are not like, I would consider us at least very decent engineers. And I got to say, it was tough. It was probably 10 to 100 times harder to build a blockchain application than it was to build any kind of 
non-blockchain application at the time. It was incredibly difficult. In-house, we had built a bunch of this complicated infrastructure and like our own kind of internal developer tools to basically power this application that we we're building. We hit up a bunch of our friends who are also in the blockchain space building similar things. And we started to hear that everyone was having these same problems, like the Dapper Labs team, which built CryptoKitties, and now they build Topshot on Flow and Flow. They were having the same problems. Everyone was having the same problems. And what we started to realize was there was a whole new industry that was about to explode. And people wanted to build all sorts of cool applications, but no one had the tools and no one had the infrastructure to do it. We had all these ideas and we wanted to build skyscrapers, but all we had at the time were the equivalent of picks and shovels. And with picks and shovels, you can only build a mud hut. So in our mind, we were like, you know, if we want to build these cities and skyscrapers and we want people to be able to build blockchain applications that are amazing and incredible, we're actually going to have to build the infrastructure and the tools to make that possible. So that was really the origin story for how Alchemy started. We were building a blockchain application. We realized we didn't have the infrastructure. We realized no one else had the infrastructure. And that infrastructure like this would be incredibly important to actually getting to where this blockchain ecosystem would want to go. So in solving the problem for ourselves, we discovered that everyone else had this big need. And we decided to launch essentially what we had at the time as a platform for everybody else to take advantage of. And then basically just grew it from there. So what I want to know, though, is this is at a time when there weren't a ton of like popular apps built on the blockchain. Like OpenSea wasn't some big thing. There wasn't you know, NFT sales, DAOs. So much of this stuff really didn't exist. We hadn't gone through these like massive crypto booms yet. And so there's probably a lot of people who are pretty skeptical about like, why do you need infrastructure when there's nothing to be built on top of this infrastructure? So like, and I know a lot of entrepreneurs go through that where they're like, I'm trying to build something for a market that's going to exist in five years rather than you know skating to where the puck currently is. So how do you convince people of that when you're not just selling them the vision of your own startup, you have to sell them the vision of the market too? Yeah, that's a great question. Let me paint the picture for you in 2017, 2018 when we started. No one gave a shit about crypto. It was like this fringe thing that only a few people had heard of. It was this like tiny, tiny thing. When we started Alchemy, our estimation of the total market size at the time was $5 million. This wasn't like what we were making. This was like the total market size for like all crypto companies. Um, exactly like you're saying, OpenSea like, was two people at that time, Alex and Devin. They're actually one of our very, very first users. Our first user was this guy who was working on a side project that no one had heard of at the time. There was this crazy idea to basically create these like things called NFTs. Actually, they weren't even called NFTs. This predated the NFT standard, but these things were called CryptoPunks. It was art on the blockchain, essentially. He was our very, very first user. There were just like two people at the time. So there are all these teams I worked with in the early days that today, OpenSea is like a $13 billion company. CryptoPunks, everyone's heard of CryptoPunks now. They're like the premier NFT. Like so many of our early users and the people we work with early started back then when nobody cared. And it's just been absolutely amazing to, to see the journey. But to your point, like how did we talk about and understand the vision and the opportunity at the time? I think one thing is it was not certain. It would be easy for <laughs> Nikhil and I to sit here and say, hey, we knew all along. We did not know all along. I don't think anyone knew all along. You ask Alex and Devin in 2017. I don't think it was super clear to them either. But what we thought was looking back on history, you saw the personal computer develop. You always see an infrastructure or developer platform start to take hold. So in the personal computer, you've got a CPU and a motherboard and stuff like that. But in order to actually build applications, you have to have a developer platform. So Microsoft Windows, Mac OS, that's what eventually enabled people to actually build applications and bring real change to the world. The internet saw the same thing. You've got your actual protocols and stuff like that, but it's really Amazon Web Services and things like that, abstraction layers like that, that allowed 
companies like Pinterest and Uber and Netflix and all these companies we know and love to exist, right? Because AWS is what makes it way easier to actually build internet companies. We felt like the same thing could happen in blockchain. And in a way, I think a lot of it isn't necessarily about predicting the future. Some part of it is about trying to have a part in inventing the future. I think one can ask the question, like if Alchemy hadn't started in 2017, what would crypto look like today? I think we've got a small but important role in basically empowering like a lot of these developers to build the applications that they want. And there's a bit of a give and take, right? There's always a give and take between infrastructure and applications when it comes to technological progress. So you get better infrastructure, which enables you to build better applications, which brings more developers and users into the space, which finances more infrastructure, which allows people to build even better applications and so on and so forth. So infrastructure and applications really start to develop in lockstep. And that's something that we thought could happen. I don't think we knew for sure that it would happen at that time. But, you know, we felt like it could happen and we felt like it was an exciting enough area to make a bet in. And it was just really fun to work in the space. So we went for it. And here we are today. It's pretty amazing that these kind of developer platforms, they don't come up that often because those platform shifts aren't that frequent. But there's such a huge opportunity, especially because consumer fads and interest are fickle. Like things change really quickly. If CryptoPunks were the NFTs du jour of, of, you know, a year ago, you know, now Bored Apes are really the top thing and there's going to be something new tomorrow. The consumer interest changes really fast, but sometimes it's a lot easier to predict that like, it doesn't really matter what happens on the consumer layer. The infrastructure will need to be there regardless. As long as you think that there's new opportunities, new utility to unlock that other people will come up with creative ways to use, building the infrastructure seems like the, the safest bet. Like we've, we're, we love that space. That's why Signal Fire, you know, we're one of the earliest investors in, in Alchemy, but also SuperDAO building sort of the, the alchemy for DAOs or Kurtosis, which is building sort of the alchemy for blockchain test nets. Signal Fire loves this market because you don't have to be the cool kid in the world and know exactly what everyone's going to love to do in five years. You just have to know what platform they're going to be building it on. And I think that you guys really saw that coming ahead of anybody else. Honestly, like it was really interesting seeing the difference between consumer and developer stuff because I think there's just like so many stark differences. One thing that was actually really very surprising to us, honestly, and, and very surprising to me, if you go to the Alchemy website or read a news article, there's always like this, what we call the nine grid. It's like nine boxes where it talks about the computer, internet, and, and Web3 and the operating system, which is a developer platform for computers, and then AWS, which is a developer platform for the internet. I think it was like two months into starting Alchemy, we drew that. And this was two months into the head, kind of hedge fund machine learning data science product. And that has actually stayed the product roadmap and the product's kind of stack has like essentially stayed the same since the very beginning, almost four and a half years ago, which was mind blowing to us because in consumer, we changed our product like every two days. So it's like the same vision, but the product changed. You know, the market is there. There are people who are alive who want to connect with their friends and that's, that's a market that's there. But in crypto, we just weren't sure that the market was there, right? And not this December, but the previous December. We've had multiple acquisition offers over the years and one of the, another, a company had come and was interested in buying us and Joe and I had a conversation that December. We said, just a sanity check, you know, we're dedicating our life to this. We had been four years in Alchemy. It was 2020 December. We are 10 years out of grad school, undergrad, eight years out of grad school. And basically, the last couple months, we'd had kind of like mild traction. I mean, people wanted the product. The market was just really small, right? And we said, okay, are we willing to wait five years, 10 years for crypto to be a thing. Because over the years, we got more conviction that crypto would definitely be a thing, but we were not sure about the timeline because it was yet to be kind of normal use cases. So basically, 
we said, are we willing to wait five, 10 years? And we looked at each other and we're like, yeah, well, let's do it. You know, we think it'll be two or three years, but we're willing to wait. And we think this could be really cool. So basically what happened was 30 days later, the market exploded, right? And last year was just like an absolute crazy year for us, but it was just not, I mean, in retrospect, everyone's like, oh, it's so obvious. Like it was not obvious at all. And when we did our series A round is the depths of crypto winter. And typically every other fundraise we've done has been, we've never needed the cash. We're companies highly profitable. We're super, super frugal in the company. You know, everyone's asking us, did you guys buy a plane? Do you, whatever. And it's like, no, Joe and I rode the back of coach, like, and we share a hotel room. Yeah. Did you literally just fly to F Denver today yeah. in the very last yeah, yeah. row of your plane? I was in the second to last row. Joe was in the very last row. <laughs> middle seat, middle seat, both just like on the school bus in high school. <laughs> yeah. So it was really interesting though, because like every fundraise we've done has been super, super, like it's just everyone inbounding us and want to give us money and we've never needed it. In 2019, when we did our Series A, it was the depths of crypto winter. We only had one term sheet. There was one fund, Pantera, who believed in us and they've had an amazing return so far, but it's hard to explain like how not obvious this was. Like multiple people have told us, look, if you get like a $20 million acquisition offer, you should just take it. And Joe and I are like, we're not doing this for money. Like what would we do if we made a bunch of money? It's like we do, we literally do the same exact thing. Like what's the point of trying to get acquired? So I think when you hear these stories, there's a lot of like hindsight bias around people thinking, oh, it's just like so obvious, such an obvious idea. And the idea pattern matching made sense, but it was just not clear when, if, the market would take off. And last year that really happened. Okay. So I want to hear about the company culture at Alchemy, because I think that's one of the most unique things is you guys have really always had this very like dorm room vibe from the very start with down to lunch, everyone like living together, building this thing together. I feel like you guys work incredibly hard. I know that you take incredibly short breaks to like post Instagram stories of you working from somewhere pretty or like having a Nerf gun fight, but you're working all the time as best I can tell. But how do you guys think about building company culture? Like what, what values do you want in a company culture? Because it feels like you've made a place that is really fun to work. And in a moment when so much talent is moving out of big tech giants and excited about Web3, you guys have become this place that feels like both a big company, but that feels like a small company and feels like a group of friends just building something fun, which is really kind of the core ethos of all of Web3 is that like, this is just an exciting thing. And like together we can build something fun. It's really interesting. I think this stems a lot from just how we wanted to build a company in the early days. Like Joe and I, our personalities are, we're very chill, but we're also very competitive. So it's like, if it's a competition, we're going to win. We're like very intense, but we're also just like general demeanor is like very chill. We lived together for five and a half years. We like worked together like seven plus years. We like never got into an argument, like not even once. Right. And I think that, and we've gone through like crazy, like unimaginably crazy shit before. And you know, Probably some of it's not appropriate for this show, but but can talk about how, if people want to reach out to me afterwards, happy to share. But I think one of the things is like every single moment of the journey has always been fun. Even through the craziest times, most stressful times, it's always been fun. It's been hard, it's been stressful, but it's always been fun. And I think we just wanted to create like from like I think our first days in college, one of the single best things Stanford does is create an amazing freshman dorm environment. You know, I literally saw my freshman roommate like two days ago, right? And so basically we said we want to create that, right? And we spent many, many years creating it through our product. And then, you know, when we pivoted to crypto, we we tried to create we, and even before that, we tried we created it with our company. And the company is really small. 
beginning of last year, we were 13 people. So a little bit about the fundraising situation. So I don't think we've actually ever announced this. January, the company is worth $72 million. That had been our Series A valuation. In February, I think the round of February we announced in March, the company was valued at 500. Everyone said it was way overvalued. We said it was a steal. In October, it was three and a half billion. Everyone said it was way too expensive. We said it was a steal. I told everyone it should be five to six. In 52 days later, we did a round at 10 billion. Everyone said it was too expensive. Actually, that round, people didn't say it was too expensive. And we've actually grown more than 50% since the round we just announced a couple of days ago. But I think the crazy part is if you look at a company that's $10 billion, you would expect it to be thousands of people at least. And we were 13 at the beginning of last year. And we just hit 51 signed. I think we have 48 in person now. But when we did that $3.5 billion round in October, we were 27 people, right? And 22 of those people had been founders of some shape, uh, way, or form. Multiple of those people had run multi-hundred person companies. Rob had the Stanford CS and sold a couple companies and then had run half of the trust and safety team at Facebook, 425 people. So it's like we had hired these like incredibly, incredibly, incredibly talented people who were like way overqualified for the jobs that they came in and did. You know, Rob came in to do product and he did recruiting for us for a year, right? And the other thing was we filtered very heavily on culture. We don't care like how smart you are. Every investor and recruiter we've worked with has said, Every other company would tell you to raise the bar on talent. For you guys, honestly, you just need to lower the bar and hire some people. Because there is a flip side to this. Everyone talks about keeping the talent bar high. The flip side is you grow way slower than you cut up, right? And we took a big hit to the company, the productivity, the growth of the company. We could have grown a lot faster. We just hired more people. But the flip side is we have a very, very, very fun culture. And, and it feels very young. And I think, I think the way to really describe it is it, it feels like a bunch of Olympic athletes living in a freshman dorm. Well, I completely agree. I just want to jump in and say, like, we value like culture so much in a sense where we want everyone to feel included. So like the way that I like to say about this is like, think about when you were in elementary school or middle school, right? You're either bullied, you saw someone being bullied, or if you were the bully, maybe you're getting hurt from like another angle, right? So when you go through life, you want to make sure that people feel kind of like loved in the environment that they're in. So we kind of try to make sure in alchemy, even before and down to lunch, that, you know, everyone who we brought in, it's family, it's friendship, it's exclusivity, it's like open communication, transparency. And so we continue doing that uh, currently. And it's great because Joni Keel valued the same stuff. So it's easy for us and everyone... I don't know, just love everybody that works at Alchemy. And it's cool because like Angelina is like the culture queen of Alchemy and basically runs yeah. the entire culture at Alchemy. And this is just another crazy example. You know, when Angelina joined, we were literally mailing out stickers for our users at Down to Lunch. And one of my friends had posted in the Berkeley group and said, hey, we need someone to help fold envelopes. And Angelina calls me. She's like, okay, how long is the job? I was like, just for like three hours, probably just today. And then, you know, like six years later, she's running everything in Alchemy. So I think the thing I would say about the culture is like, we hire people who are very self-driven, very motivated, but also like, very personable and very fun. And so as a result, there's like no rules and no structure. Like no one at the company would call me or Joe their boss. People said that once or twice and we're like, that's weird. Don't don't say that anymore. So the really interesting thing is the output and maybe to say more concretely about this for those of you who haven't seen, you can go check my Instagram stories. We have some stuff on there. But you know, We'll all go to Cabo together. We went to Korea and Japan together. We'll party on the weekends together. And you'll see stuff like, I'll see our team like taking shots at 3 a.m. on their Instagram story. And then like, I'll see a customer message saying, hey, I have a question. And then immediately, like while they're out at a club partying, I'll see a message go through saying like, oh, hey, like, 
let me help you all set up your rate limit or whatever you need and them jumping on their phone and helping out, right? So I think it's this, everyone just goes so above and beyond that we have the flexibility to create a really, really fun environment because we just know everyone's going to hustle really hard. Does that mean that you ever have trouble with maybe taking on employees or you know interviewing people that are great, like incredibly talented, but maybe they're not quite the same like age group or just feel like a, or like maybe just feel a little bit different than that? Like, and how do you think through like making, like when do you make sacrifices in company culture for, for that, um, you know, for talent fit, or do you just never do that? And like, and you know, do you think that that, that could be problematic even by like limiting yourself by saying like, we got to have people that are like fun and personable, even if they aren't quite as talented, maybe. That's a great question. And let me be a little more explicit here. It's not an age thing. We actually made a spreadsheet recently and like, I was pretty shocked to find a third of the people are at Alchemy are married and, and a lot of them have kids in their 30s and 40s and older. A third of the people are in serious relationships and then a third are single. And like, and the age spans from everything from, you know, our interns of 17, 18, 19 to we have people in their 40s and 50s. So it's not at all like an age thing. It's really just an energy thing, right? It's like, a, are you intensely competitive and really driven, but also really relaxed and fun and, and like to joke around and be silly and stuff like let, let me give you an example of someone who would not be a good fit, right? We had a recruiter who we almost recruit interviewed. And at the very last interview, she was like, I really just don't want to be friends with my coworkers. I just want them to be coworkers. And I don't want to be friends with them. And I was like, I literally told her, I was like, you will not be happy here. You should not join this alchemy. I know you're excited, but you should you shouldn't because you're not gonna be happy. So I think it's not an age thing or it's not a extrovertedness thing. It's really just like, a, are you a nice person who's like fun and relaxed? And would you want to be around them? And do you work really hard? And to be clear, like just being a fun and nice person is not enough. Like you have to be exceptionally great at what you do. But with that, I want to hear a little bit about your vision for what's going to happen next in Web3. Recently, Moxie Marlinspike put out this big blog post, incredibly well-read. He's the founder of Signal. The messaging app also wrote the sort of core encryption protocol that WhatsApp uses, you know, very influential figure in this space. And he wrote this whole article about why he thought that Web3 wasn't necessarily living up to a lot of its own ideals. And he wasn't really sure of the, like a, the purpose of a lot of it. And one of the things he said was that like, oh, some services like Alchemy are actually really centralized and not as decentralized. I dug into that and it seemed like he wasn't actually right. And Moxie was on Press Club a year ago. Guy's amazing, super smart. But when you're trying to learn as much as you can about a really big space really quickly, it's hard to get everything right. So we just love to hear your perspective on the utility versus orthodoxy question in crypto, as well as the centralization and or decentralization of alchemy. But just how do you think about that? Like the first thing that's most important is just delivering great utility to users versus the most important thing is like staying true to this, you know, these this ethos of being fully decentralized, fully user controlled, even if sometimes that makes it a lot harder or slower to build things. Yeah, that's a great question, Josh. And I think you captured the crux of that really well. Moxie, super smart, very earnest kind of like take on what's going on in Web3. It is a big space, like you're saying. So I think there's a lot that maybe just didn't see or hadn't, hadn't realized yet. In terms of how Web3 extends on Web2, I think there's actually a really big difference and this will get into centralization or decentralization, but the core of Web3 is decentralized data. That's the main important part. So when you look at Web2, you look at Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, all fantastic companies, by the way, like decentralization and centralization are not necessarily evil or good or anything like that. They're just different tools for different types of problems. But Facebook and Twitter, for example, they own their data. If you want access to Facebook's data, you have to access it through the APIs and you can't take it with you. So Facebook can shut you off. Facebook can change your data. Facebook owns that data. 
The difference about Web3 and blockchain, the difference is that that data is actually on the blockchain and not owned by anybody. So for example, Alchemy doesn't own that data. We can't shut off access to that data. We can't change that data. That data represents money. We can't take that money from you or anything like that. No one really can. And that's the magic of something like Web3 is if you don't like Alchemy, you can go access the blockchain through another way, or you could run your own node if you wanted to. But if you don't like Facebook, there's no way you're getting that Facebook data without still using Facebook. So I think that's the core, core difference in terms of where this industry is going. You know, I think Moxie looked at the state of the industry today. It's a little bit like looking at the state of the internet in 1995. You know, it's so slow. I can't use my phone because I'm using dial up or I'm using like my modem to access the internet. I don't know how many people are in here that are old enough to remember that, but like there's a point where in order to use the internet, you actually couldn't use your phone. <laughs> You're just making us feel really old to think that anybody doesn't remember that, but I appreciate that check. <laughs> <laughs> we have interns and, and new college grads who are like landlines or that. Anyways, it's like looking at the internet in the 90s and being like, hey, I can't even download a song unless I wait for like 10 minutes. Like, how's the internet ever going to amount to anything? I think you have to look not where the industry is or where the technology is today, but where it's going and how quickly it's getting there. If you looked at the internet in 95, that progress was accelerating rapidly. I think you see the same thing in blockchain. Like that progress is accelerating rapidly. More and more builders enter the space every day. More and more stuff is happening. So I think, you know, all the potential like concerns around centralization versus decentralization, I think the industry is moving in the right direction. All the right tools are being built. Alchemy is doing its part in, in building that. And I think if you look at the space, you know, two, three years from now, it'll look totally different and we'll have the best of many worlds altogether. We'd love to hear a little bit about like, what are some of the things that you found most exciting that are being built on Alchemy right now? Or like, what are you most proud of actually powering? We're so proud of everyone that has used Alchemy to build something amazing. Like the thing that is most incredibly rewarding for me and Nikhil and Angelina and the rest of the team is just being a small part of the journey for like other founders and other entrepreneurs and helping them bring their vision to the world. So I think, you know, 2020 was maybe like a year of DeFi. I think we saw like open, transparent financial systems and financial infrastructure like really come to bear. A lot of people have played around with those things. It's really changed the lives of people in countries and economies that have different financial systems that maybe aren't as stable as the US dollar and the US financial infrastructure is. I think that's been incredible. 2021, really like the year of NFTs. That's been amazing to see, you know, creators and builders be able to use NFTs to engage their community, to fund businesses, to create new types of communities. You mentioned Board 8 Yacht Club, like watching that community grow has been absolutely amazing. So I think like in terms of where the space is going, I think, you know, 2022 and onward, we're really starting to see a ton of real world mainstream usage happen in blockchain. Three years ago, two years ago, this wasn't the case. Even in 2020, DeFi was a little more of a power user thing. You know, if you asked your mom and dad, they wouldn't, you probably wouldn't know what DeFi means, decentralized finance, by the way. Um, they wouldn't know that that meant decentralized finance. I think 2021's changed. More people have heard of NFTs. NFTs have gone a lot more mainstream. You see celebrities tweeting about it on Twitter and stuff. In 2022 and onward, I think we're going to see those use cases continue to grow. I think we're going to see a bunch of other new use cases like DAOs and stuff. You mentioned SuperDAO, like DAOs and stuff that'll continue to accelerate. And we'll just see a lot more mainstream uses of blockchain, which is really exciting. And I think we're really at the first inning of blockchain and Web3. And I think over the next few years, we're going to see an incredible amount of innovation happen in the space. Nikhil, anything specifically that you're excited about? Or alternatively, is there any other like major misconceptions that you want to kind of dispel about blockchain? Yeah, I think there's a lot of really interesting use cases. And I think that probably one good thing is if you're big on crypto Twitter right now, if you read crypto Twitter, there's this big 
is it web two going to win or web three going to win fight that's going on? And really, when you think about the computer and the internet, no one said, hey, is a computer going to win or is the internet going to win? The internet is an booster pack for the computer that gives it new capabilities and lets you do new things. And similarly, when you think about Web3, Web3 is a booster pack for the internet that lets it do new things. So I think there's a lot of argument between Web2 slash the internet and Web3, but really it's just like a complementary technology that will extend the capabilities and make it better and easier to use. And not just easier, but give you more functionality. I love it. Okay, so I'm going to come back to you in a second and ask for some final startup lessons for founders out there, whether that's about keeping up the momentum when things aren't going well, or how to convince people (laughs) to believe in a vision of something that really doesn't exist yet, or how to build the best company culture, or just anything that you think that might be really valuable for people. But quickly, thank you guys all so much for being part of the Press Club community. If you're building something super exciting in this space, we would love to hear about it at SignalFire, our venture fund. We're a billion-dollar venture fund investing seed to Series B, with our big help being recruiting. We built this thing called Beacon Talent, crunches a half trillion data points, ranks 100 million people on the tech ecosystem on skill level and poachability. So that way we can actually help our companies look at lists of hundreds of people that are the best for their role that they're most likely going to actually leave their job to come join. So if you need help with recruiting, and especially if you're building the picks and shovels of Web3 or any other industry, that's the space we love. We're investors in Alchemy, Kurtosis, SuperDAO, and a bunch of other incredible blockchain uh, and Web3 companies. So we'd love to have you guys check us out. So now I want to give a few of the top insights from today's talk because I think you guys just dropped so much knowledge on us. And you, you talked about originally like not growing up wanting to be an astronaut, but wanting to build something, especially helping build something that would bring people together, whether that's to be social or to be able to build something of their own. And so you guys spent years building all of these different apps that all failed and you stuck through it no matter what saying like, hey, can we build something that helps people get together with their acquaintances, see their close friends because that's where real memories come from. So you built this thing down to lunch, grew to this incredible rate, became the number one app in the app store briefly. And you guys broke iMessage by putting your own phone number in the app so that you could get feedback directly from your customers, which I think is such a cool idea. Though eventually that meant you're getting tens of thousands of text messages a day. You had to ask Tim Cook personally for help getting your iMessage fixed. Just a hilarious story, but definitely something to, to remember that like you're getting that direct feedback from your customers is the fastest way to iterate. But you guys built V2 and V3 in secret because this smear campaign that said that people are going to get kidnapped for using your app, kind of tanked the app's uh, growth for a while. You guys managed to rebuild it up, but eventually you saw that there was this new computing change company. And when there are big changes in technology, there are opportunities to not only build crazy new utilities and apps, but also to build those picks and shovels, to build the underlying infrastructure. And these platform shifts don't happen that often. And so you guys made a really brave decision to shift your focus from an app that was doing well to something really new and exciting, even if the market wasn't there yet. And I love that you guys went out there when the total addressable market, the TAM was just $5 million. There were hardly any companies building and who needed this infrastructure, but you knew it was coming. You had that vision. And so after building some analytics for crypto hedge funds and selling a half million dollars worth of software, you started to think about what's really going to be important long-term and that's building these picks and shovels. And so eventually, you know, you got people like OpenSea and the CryptoPunks building on top of it. And we saw that basically sometimes it's a lot easier to predict the 
infrastructure layer than the consumer layer. You never really know what the next consumer trend is going to be, but you can know what utility they might need to power it. And that's why I think some of these infrastructure startups are so powerful and how you turned Alchemy into the AWS of blockchain. And so meanwhile, you're turning down acquisition offers a year ago. It's like January 2021, $72 million valuation. All of a sudden, February, it's $500 million. Then October, it's $3.5 billion. Now you just raised at this $10.2 billion valuation, despite only having 51 employees, which is just quite a remarkable feat. But I think one of the reasons you've been able to do that is you've kept the talent bar so high and kept the team so small. And you've also really focused on this company culture that instead of trying to just, you know, take the best people, no matter who they were, you tried to get people that would really be able to gel together. And as Angelina, one of your earliest employees talked about that, it feels like Olympic athletes living in a college dorm together where you're all just trying to like hone your craft, but you all feel like you're on one big team and you don't want anybody calling your boss. And it's really not about age. It's just about the sense of like unified energy. And I think that's a great lesson that if you can pick a value system or a type of energy that you're looking for in your employees and employ everybody you can find that's great who shares that sort of ethos, you can move so fast, even with a really small team. And that, you know, it can be tough sometimes to know when you're looking at something like blockchain now, it's easy to say, oh, well, there's really not that much core utility or how is this really helping people's lives? But the same thing could be said if you look back at the age of the internet in 1995 with dial-up and it's like, how many people are really here? Why is it so slow to download? Is this actually going to be val- you know, valuable? But I think whenever that computing shift changes, there's such a big opportunity. And like you guys said, it's not about Web 2 versus Web 3. It's that Web 3 is a booster pack for the internet. The same way we didn't say it was the computer versus the internet. It's that the internet imbues the computer with new capabilities. And I love that that's what you're doing for so many developers out there with Alchemy. So thank you guys for building this fundamental infrastructure so everybody else can just focus on building a product that delights the world and, and bring something new to us all. So thank you for that. All right. So now I got one last question for you. Maybe you just leave us with one final lesson for founders out there from your incredible ups and downs journey that you want to share with the world. Yeah, sure. I'll keep it pretty quick. I think one big lesson is just not being afraid of failure and not being afraid of misses. I think over and over, we've seen that so many people have built so many incredible things, built many other things that you, you know, considered quote a failure before that. But that was part of the process. And it's just really part of the journey to creating something that actually works. I think one reason we as a society tend to be a little scared of like missing shots on goals, because think back to when you were in school, you'd get a test with 10 questions. And it's just all about like, you only had those 10 questions. And it's about whether you can answer those questions right or wrong. But when you get out into the real life, it's not like you have a limited set of questions. You have as many shots on goal as you want. And it's less about getting every single question right. And more about taking enough shots on goal that you get in the goal and that you get it right ultimately in the end. And so I think like failure has to be a part of that journey because it's a journey of like iteration and testing and learning and growth. And that's what's really, really important. Obviously, there's always some survivorship bias (laughs) advice that anyone gives. But just, you know, sharing that that's one thing that we've learned along our journey that has served us well. Awesome. Actually, before I share my point, I just want to give a huge plug to Josh and Signal Fire. Josh has been absolutely amazing and more than once has saved Alchemy when we desperately needed help. Even before he was at Signifier, Josh has been a friend for a long time and obviously was one of the top reporters at TechCrunch and just top journalists in general. And Signifier, independently before Josh uh, joined, was incredibly, incredibly awesome. They put a check-in in our Series A and has been super helpful, Stephen Trusheim and the whole crew at Signifier. So highly recommend, and this isn't just because we're on the show, it's like highly recommend Signifier and Josh. I mean, that force combined would be really amazing. Um, yep, second that. Both Josh and Signifier 
Oh, making me all teary over here, Nikhil. You guys are the sweetest. <laughs> love you guys. And I love getting frantic texts the night before you're making some enormous announcement. Yeah. Being like, wait, how do I phrase this? And I'm just like, dude, let's do this. You got the story. You guys know the vision. So it's been a, it's been super inspiring helping you all along. Josh has literally saved a bunch of stuff for us. So can tell people that more later. I would say actually I've got three big pieces of advice, which I think are really have been really key to you know, I, I, I still in, you know, Joe and I had, we don't consider ourselves like quote successful because we still feel like it's still the early days. One of our recent investors, Egon from Silver Lake had been like, yeah, easy hundred X on here. It's going to be the most valuable company in the world. And I was like, yo, 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 let's set the bar low, man. Like, yes, but we have a long way to go. So we still think it's early days for us and it is, and it is early days for us. But I think there's been three things that have been really kind of core to our operation and that, that have really helped us get to where we are. The first one is optimize for now. This is something that is extremely hard to learn and extremely hard to rip out of yourself if you're a perfectionist, especially if you went to a good school or you worked at a big tech company or you pride yourself in just being good at something. I was an extreme perfectionist. It was very difficult because like when you think about what you do in school, it's like, you know, you prepare for things, an exam or like SATs or a job or whatever it is that's way in the future. But in this early stage startup, you have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone six months from now, let alone two years from now, right? So what that means is when you're building something, and I'll give like a couple of concrete examples, but like when you're writing a piece of code, let's say you're building a website, you actually don't want to make it as perfect as possible. And you want to just get it out as quickly as possible, get a crappy version out and get feedback on it and learn, iterate, right? Like when you're trying to do a deal, like you don't need to worry about what's going to happen six months from now, what's going to happen a year from now. Because really when you're pivoting in an early stage startup, you have no idea, like the product you have today is probably not going to be a product you have tomorrow. It's probably not going to be the product you have next week. It's definitely not going to be the product you have six months. And really just like speed is the most important thing. I think Joe said earlier, the big don't kill the strong. It's like the fast kill the slow and the fastest speed is what wins. So that's number one, optimize for now. Number two, this is something that like we have always stuck to and has served us well. Jeff Bezos says all the time, customer obsession, focus on building a product that's valuable to your customers. And this probably sounds obvious when you hear it, but there's so many other things that when you're doing a startup that grab your attention, fundraising, press, growth, marketing, speaking at conferences, all this kind of stuff. Like we never do that. Like we don't go to conferences. We don't speak at conferences. We try to minimize press, you know, Josh is a friend. So we're doing this and you know, the company is growing and we need to recruit. So like, that's why we're here. But in the early days, there's so much noise. You read, if you read TechCrunch and you just assume that everyone's raising money and all this kind of stuff, but really 99% of my life and Joe's life is sitting in our office with our team thinking about our product, right? And like that is really what is the most core. If you can mess up everything else, I don't think we messed up a lot of stuff. Like we messed up almost everything, honestly, besides building good products. And if you have a good product that can sustain everything. And then third thing I think that's one of the most important is you should only do it if you're having a good time. If you're doing a startup to make money, I promise you there are much easier, much less stressful ways to make a lot of money. Don't do it for the money. Do it because you're having a lot of fun and make sure you love the people you're working with. Our philosophy has been never compromise on a single person. If you don't feel great about working with someone, if you're not like, man, I'm so excited to come in. And if it was just me and this person in the office on Sunday, I would come in just to hang out with them and be around them, right? It doesn't have to be someone who's your absolute best friend. But if you're not pumped about being around that person, I wouldn't hire them. And I think especially to like the early, early, early team, because ultimately, 
we thought it would be a three month journey, a six month journey to be successful. If your startup is successful, it's going to be seven to 10 years minimum. And it's been like 10 years for us. And the last point is every time you see the press, it's like alchemy, 18 months from public launch to $10 billion valuation, which is true, but also we've been working on startups for 10 years. So the journey is much longer than you think. Make sure you're having a blast. That's so inspiring, dude. Thank you so much for sharing those things. I'm just blown away. This is one of my favorite episodes we've ever had because it's just amazing to hear the real life story about a, a startup and the rise, the fall, you know, the hard times, the big decisions and the company culture that I think are really what holds it all together. So thank you so much for being here on Press Club. Alchemy, if you guys want to work at a company that is incredibly powerful, you know, is powering all of the products that you know and love in Web3, definitely go check out Alchemy. Incredible place to work. Super fun company culture. And you get to guys work with these guys. They're not even going to be your boss. They're going to be your coworkers. And I love that. So definitely go check out Alchemy. Um, if you're building something else in, in the Web3 space, definitely pitches at SignalFire. Would love to hear about it. We just led the round for SuperDAO, building infrastructure for DAOs, and would love to hear about what it is you're building and excited about. But whatever it is, don't be afraid of misses. Optimize for now. Be obsessed with your customers and just make sure you're having a good time the whole way because these guys sure are. And I think that's what got them to this $10 billion valuation. So thank you so much, Nikhil, Joe, Angelina from Alchemy for being with us here on Press Club. Thanks for having us, Josh. And maybe one more thing to sweeten this. If you email us and tell us you heard this from Josh Constantine's podcast, we'll toss in um, a free growth tier account for you for Alchemy. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Super cool. So yeah, if you're building something on there, now you got no excuse not to build in on Alchemy. Super useful blockchain infrastructure. So thank you guys for, for offering that gift to our listeners. It's been an absolute pleasure. Can't wait to see what happens next with your story because I think this is, like you said, still incredibly early. So hope you guys all go out there and build something. It's been a pleasure. I'm Josh Constein, your host of Press Club, where the big names in tech talk about the big ideas. We will see you next uh, next Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific, where we uh, to talk with more big ideas, more big founders. Uh, would love to have you part of our community. Join Press Club by hitting the little Press Club button at the top of the screen. Search for our Substack, constein.substack.com, or just search Press Club wherever you listen to podcasts. We have amazing interviews with the founders of Facebook, Shopify, Spotify, Slack, Salesforce, Substack, Patreon, and now Alchemy. So it's been a wonderful time. Thanks, guys, so much. Thanks for, Thanks for having us, Thank Josh. You, Josh. Thank you so much for being here one more time, and we'll catch you next week on Press Club. Farewell.